0: Let's turn now to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we do uh, give you thanks for the old rugged cross. That is where our glory is. And may we never look to anything else. May we never trust in anything else. May there be nothing else that we prize so much and that cross, and the work that was accomplished upon that cross for us. For We once were children of wrath. We once were a people who were far away from you. We were once a people without hope. We now have that hope. We now have been brought near to you. We now have been made your sons and daughters because of the work that our Lord Jesus did upon that cross. And we give you, ever give you thanks and praise. We know as we, because we have read in the book of Revelation, and there even in heaven, and which will extend from eternity, that Jesus Christ will be exalted for that work that he did on the cross as the Lamb of God. So we thank you that we may even now, while on this earth and, and this small congregation here may join in with those praises, with those hymns, with the exaltation of Jesus Christ upon his throne. Our Father, we do have to confess before you that we are still come before you as those who have sinned. And though we have the hope of eternal life, we have the hope of glory, we have the confidence of forgiveness of sin, yet... We nevertheless have often lived as though we have none of these things. And there are things upon this earth that we have valued more, things upon this earth that we have placed greater trust in. And we confess this before you that we have placed before us other idols and we have used, we have broken other laws and other to, to keep those idols and to Uh, to deal with our fears. And we have lied and we have cheated and we have committed adultery and murder and all those things we have done, whether outwardly or inwardly. And all the more we look to the cross of Jesus Christ and give you thanks for that cross. For once and for all, his work there was sufficient to cover over all of our sins, the past, the present, the future. And far from it causing us to then just to take sin lightly, all the more then we desire to live righteous lives so that we may glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we continue to, to grow in sanctification. We pray for the work of your Spirit within us to sanctify us, and we pray for the work of your Spirit to go forth into this world convicting hearts and bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ, sprinkling their hearts with the blood of Christ. We pray for the, the work of those who have gone throughout this world and praying for success in their ministry that they may bear great fruit and through their labors. We pray for those who throughout this country are ministering in the name of Christ. We think of the, the ministries and um, on college campuses, and own, the ministry we uh, support. And, um, and we pray for those who minister with Reform University Fellowship and pray for fruit from their labors. There are many who, when they go to college, that is when they either forsake the faith, or for many, that's when they come to faith. We pray that many would come to faith in Jesus Christ in those years. And we pray for those who, uh, who are as ministers, who as uh, college workers, uh, that you would so use them uh, to, uh, to bring the gospel on the campuses throughout our land. Our Father, we pray for those who grieve. Think of the many hard things that take place in this world. We particularly lift up the families, friends, those who have lost loved ones in that plane crash over the French French Alps. We pray for your mercies upon those families. Our Father, these are times that we realize that as much as that we think that our own lives are in our control, we realize that we have no control And all the more then, may we rest in you, of knowing that we are in your hands, that you are the one who is in control of all things, that you count the very days of our lives because those lives are, every day is in your hands. And may we be trusting in you, whatever we go through in this life, however hard it may be, whatever news may be facing us, whatever trials may be our way, may we trust in you. And now we pray that your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, guide us as we open your word, make that word come alive to us, give us understanding. We pray these things in our Lord's name. Amen. Well, for our scripture, we're looking at Luke nineteen, verses twenty eight to forty. I welcome you to certainly open your Bibles to that. If you're using the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 743, Luke 19. You'll also see it as an insert, and on that insert, if you want to take notes, you're welcome to do so. Luke 19, beginning with verse 28, let us hear the word of God. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples would cry out. And we're reading here in a text of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. The first time that Jesus, that we know of, that he entered into Jerusalem, he was but probably 40 days old. His mother Mary had to go to the temple for purification rites, and so Mary and Joseph would have taken uh, Jesus. Luke records it in chapter 2. And while they're there in the temple, there's an elderly man. His name is called Simeon. And he proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah who would bring salvation to Israel. And then after saying this this wonderful news, he, he turns to Mary and he says to her this sobering prophecy. Behold. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. For that sword is about to be unsheathed because the wicked thoughts of hearts are going to be revealed. Indeed, we'll see some of them even now this day. More than once, Jesus has told his disciples, he's got to enter Jerusalem. And there he's going to suffer. He's going to be killed. He's also going to rise again. And now he comes to this day of this entrance into Jerusalem. So let's visit it again. And let me, I'm going to read again, beginning with verse 28 to 34. And when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of it." Now as I was preparing this passage you know, to preach on, it seemed to me this section, particularly that I've just read, it's an odd story to have in the gospel. I mean, what purpose? Does it serve? These are the kind of things that bother me as I as I read these things. And I mean, why is there such a deal being made about getting this this cult of a donkey? Okay, I mean, in John's gospel, all he writes is this: Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. And that seems like enough. I mean, I mean, what's the whole purpose of all this other stuff? Okay. Now, some might say, well, you know, it's another miracle, and you can marvel at that. And, and well, that, that's true. But when you look at Jesus' miracles, as they're recorded through the Gospels, there's, they're usually they're signifying a particular work of Jesus' redemption. Okay? Jesus is healing. He cleanses people from, from leprosy and, and drives out demons, and that signifies here is, the, here is the Son of God who's has come, and he's, he's bringing redemption. He's recovering the land, and, and so on. Or, or they mark his authority and power, like when he, he calmed that storm. Okay. Here, only the disciples would have had known that anything kind of special had happened. And even for that matter, there may not even be anything special about this. Jesus could have made arrangements beforehand. Okay? This is the area where he had raised Lazarus not too long before. He had followers there. While he's there, he could even say, I'm going to be here in a week. I want you to have this donkey ready for me. So we don't even know if it is a miracle. But whether it's a miracle or maybe Jesus made the arrangements, what it demonstrates is that to Jesus, this is very important, that he enters Jerusalem on the cult of of a donkey, okay? It matters to him. Now, if it was a miracle, well, both Jesus and God the Father, they had a hand in arrangements. They set this all up. If it's not a miracle, at the very least, Jesus himself took the effort to arrange it. It had to happen for him. Now, why? I mean, everywhere else, Jesus traveled on foot, Okay? He doesn't have much further to go. Why does he have to ride now? Why is it so important that he rides on this on this little beast? Well, the reason, as he would explain later to his disciples after the resurrection, is that everything written about him in the in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they must be fulfilled. And what had to be fulfilled in this? Well, it's in Zechariah nine. Verse 9, let me read it to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Messiah king must enter into Jerusalem on a donkey colt amidst rejoicing. And Jesus made sure that it happened. Even down to the smallest detail. You know, Jesus noted that the colt would be one that had never been ridden upon. Now, what does that indicate? Well, you're not going to be able to go to a prophet and and read about that it was on a colt that had never been ridden on. But when you turn to the long... You'll read about sacrifices when it would have a a heifer, a cow, would be sacrificed. What was specified is that the cow could never have had a yoke on it. It could never have been put to work for it to be set apart for a sacrifice. This cult is being set apart not as a sacrifice, but for a holy task of bearing the great sacrifice uh, that will be on that cross. So now comes the entry itself. Jesus has made these arrangements. He's coming down on this donkey. And so in verse 35, it says, They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice." and praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King, who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Now, what's happening here? Evidently, the disciples got it. Okay? They understood what was Jesus' intent. And they may have been thinking of Zechariah as well, because that passage was commonly understood to be applying to the Messiah. And they're, so they're treating him now as the king. They're throwing their cloaks on the cult. They're spreading that on the road. We know from other uh, gospels the palm leaves were used as well, and that the crowd also entered into this festivity. Now it's only in Luke. Luke uses this phrase: "this whole multitude of his disciples." And he's not necessarily saying here that that whole crowd. They were disciples of Jesus, but what, but, he re, but what he reminds us is this. When we think of disciples, we think of those 12 disciples, but there were more. Remember the time that Jesus sent out his disciples uh, to go out on these short-term mission trips? He sent 72 of them out. Okay? We know also that there were women who went along with them as well following Jesus. So there may have been upwards to even a hundred of disciples who were there. Now, this excitement at the coming of Jesus—we okay, we got all this festivity. It's not just about Jesus. There is already a great atmosphere of just joyous celebration. I mentioned this. I think what was it last week? When they would have gotten to Jericho, there would have been by that time thousands of pilgrims heading up into Jerusalem. Going there for the Passover. In this location now, from the Mount Olivet to the gate, this is where they're mostly packed, and the great joy because as they come over the Mount Olivet, there they're beholding Jerusalem, beholding the gates, and now is the time where they're going to be filled with the greatest of joy. And they've also, by the way, they've been they've been singing as they've been coming up the mountain. They've been singing the Psalms of Ascents from the psalter, and once they get over that, they've been singing, and perhaps what they're singing now is Psalm 118. And one line that is in Psalm 118, which we read in the responsive reading, is this: "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." So you see how it all just kind of fits together. There's already festivity. People are already singing and, and shouting and rejoicing. They're already welcoming pilgrims. And then comes Jesus in the midst of these pilgrims and during the celebration. Now, and it helps explain a couple of things for us. One is how it is that all of the crowd who suddenly started to enter in this with the, the disciples. Okay? Now we, and it also explains that how they could all be celebrating a king, and the Roman authorities don't seem to be too concerned about it. Let's talk, first of all, about the crowd. Again, you have the disciples, maybe about a hundred of them. They think their hopes are finally coming true. The victorious welcome of Jesus as king, he's, he's about to establish his throne, all of their hopes about this kingdom, it's about to happen. Okay? And they're remembering, Luke tells us, they're remembering all the mighty works that Jesus has done before them. And, and now that mightiest work of all is about to take place. And he's going to have victory over his foes. He's going to be set up on a throne in Jerusalem. And they're ready for it. And they are praising Jesus as their king. And then you've got the crowd. They're already caught up in excitement. Anyhow, they're joining in on this. And many of them have witnessed his great works. In fact, we're told many of them had witnessed that raising or heard the story about the raising of Lazarus. And they believe that he's a prophet sent from God. And some of them are thinking, well, maybe this is the Messiah. And some of them maybe are saying, King. Maybe some of them are just saying, Blessed is he. Some of them are calling out, Son of David. They all are shouting out in some way, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're doing that already for the pilgrims who are coming in. And then because, so that explains all of this excitement and the crowd just just entering into this. And then it explains why the Romans don't get too worked up over this. When I say thousands, I mean tens of thousands of people are there. People are rejoicing. People are singing these psalms. Even though it's a crowd right there for Jesus, it's a crowd in the midst of even a much larger crowd. And the Roman authorities at this point would have paid very little attention to it. They would hardly have noticed it. But there was another group who did notice it, and they were alarmed. And they were the Pharisees. In verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now the the Pharisees, they understand what's going on. They understand the meaning of the disciples. The crowd might be oblivious to this. You know, you know how crowds are just get in, they'll just join in whatever's being said. The Pharisees also knew Zechariah. And they know that the disciples are announcing the arrival of the Messiah King. To the Pharisees, Jesus is no more than what they just addressed him as, a teacher. And he's a suspect one even at that. And as far as they are concerned, the disciples are bordering on blasphemy. But it's Jesus' response that is so intriguing. If these were silent, if all these disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, what's going on here? Is Jesus just kind of caught up in the celebration also? He's just, he's just being excited as well? Well, perhaps. But I think what he is doing, he's telling the Pharisees this, that in their, their pious concern to protect the honor of God, They have missed the significance of the moment. The Messiah king sent by God is before them. The prophecy of Zechariah is being fulfilled before their very eyes and ears. And there must be rejoicing in Jerusalem as the king enters. There must be. And if the crowd doesn't provide it, and God will see that the stones provided. Now, the lessons that we can learn from this, this great day of celebration is what the Pharisees, the crowd, and even the disciples did not really understand. And let me ask you to, to turn. We're going to look at this passage briefly, Zechariah 9, about this prophecy. Here's how you find, find Zechariah. You know, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah is just before it. Okay, so it's next to the last book in the Old Testament there. So you go Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah. Go backwards there to chapter 9 in verses 9 and 10. This is what Jesus is saying is being fulfilled. The king did come, but he was not exactly the king that they were anticipating but if they had really studied and understood Zechariah they would have recognized the clues that he gave the Pharisees perhaps would have picked up on it and and the disciples so for example in chapter 9 it says this that behold your king is coming to you righteous righteous and having salvation is he. You see, they're looking for a king who will come and save them from their oppressors. In this case, it's the Romans. But notice the attribute attributed to this king. It's not mighty. Here he comes great and mighty to win this victory. He comes righteous. And his concern is that his people, yes, be saved. He's bringing salvation but that they be saved from their own sins, that they be made righteous. And then it notes as well here that he is, he is humble. Or if you have your NIV, it says he is gentle. But he is humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, riding on a donkey was the type of beast that uh, the kings of Israel and other royalty actually did ride on. So it was appropriate for a king to be riding uh, upon this beast. And so the people appropriately are recognizing this and seeing this king. But it is not, what is not noted in the passage is that, is his royalty here, but that he is humble, that he is gentle, that he is, he is meek. That is what he is, is being noted. This king has left his place of glory up in the heavens. And he has come down, even now to Jerusalem. He has come, but not to be exalted, to, but to serve, even to suffer for his people. Now the next verse, verse 10 of the prophecy, it reads this way. Let me read the whole verse. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now the people were looking for this great kingdom to come. And their king was going to rule from, from seas to seas, from from the great river, the Euphrates Ure- rivers to throughout all of the known earth. They're looking forward to that. But they thought he was going to do it by conquering nations. Now, his kingdom will spread to the ends of the earth, but it will spread by proclaiming peace to the nations. That's how it will spread. And that peace is, first of all, the peace that we are to have with God, that reconciliation that Jesus achieves on the cross. Only then can there be peace, true peace, among men. It's all there. It's all there in the prophecy that everyone thought that they knew, thought that they understood, and yet did not. And the same type of errors are made today. So, for example, this is in this passage. There is a confusing of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of a nation. In this case, it is the freeing of the nation of Israel, making Israel an empire. But well, we can easily do that today. We can confuse the interests of God's kingdom with those of our own nation. And so, for example, the interests of our nation have to do with personal liberties, prosperity, and so on, and equal rights. All those things may be good, but they're not necessarily the same as those of the God's kingdom. God's kingdom's priority is the spread of the gospel it is turning unbelievers into the disciples of Christ. That's what Jesus came to do. That is the purpose of the church of Christ. And then there also can be confusion between God's kingdom and the earthly church, as I note here. We're, we're concerned. Churches are concerned. We're all concerned. We want to. We want to grow. We want to gain members. We want to meet our budgets. We want to... Uh, take care of our facilities, and, and so on. They may all be well and good, and they might serve God's kingdom, but it's not necessarily the priorities of God's plan for any particular church. God has one plan. That is the spread of the gospel throughout all of the world, and for his people to grow in sanctification, that is, in, in Righteousness. And so to understand Jesus, we have to keep our minds, we have to keep our hearts focused on the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God exists to do. Now, another mistake is this. It's a very common one. is to focus on one aspect of Jesus to the neglect of the other. Again, in this case... Here comes Jesus and all of his power. He's going to be a powerful deliverer from oppression. Well, yes, Jesus is a powerful deliverer. But his intent then, and it still remains this, that we be freed from the oppression of our own sin. The liberty that he wins is a a liberty from the slavery of sin. He has not come to make us wealthy and prosperity and physical things. He has come to save us from our sins, to make us grow in righteousness. And when we get a right understanding of his intent, that is when we can understand who he is and calibrate our desires with his so that our desires are the same as his desires. And then there's another the mistake that can be made. And that's misunderstanding the peace that Jesus brings. Now, again, the crowd expected peace. It was a peace that was going to come from being freed from Roman control. Uh, The peace that they would have from being freed from the oppression of others. But the peace that Jesus came to bring was not primarily peace from earthly troubles, but peace with God. That's the peace that matters. That's the peace that determines our eternal destiny. And then that's the peace that will lead into peace into other areas with ourselves and, and with others and even with our troubles. So, the upshot of all of this is that the proper way to receive Jesus as King is to receive Jesus according to his terms. Not ours. Okay? We're here to serve his kingdom, not the kingdom that we imagine for ourselves. We're to take all of him, not part of him. We do not pick and choose what aspects we're to like about him. We do not determine what we're going to accept and not accept. You know, like, you, you hear this, well, I accept the Jesus of love but not the Jesus of, of righteousness. Or I accept the Jesus of forgiveness, but not the Jesus who will judge. I accept the Jesus who wants who wants nice things, pleasant things for me. Not the Jesus who demands self-denial. I, I want the Jesus of acceptance. You know, he just accepts me for, for who I am and doesn't need me to change anything. But not the Jesus who dare to speak of hell. We're not to confuse true peace. Remember again what it is. True peace is reconciliation with God, whom we have offended. And that peace is the adoption as sons and daughters of God. That peace is the assurance of our inheritance in glory. That's our peace we'll have a measure of peace in this world, especially as we rest in this real peace of Christ. Even so, there will be troubles. Christ did not come to resolve all the troubles of this world, but to provide peace in the midst of those troubles. And so we should learn today from from this prophecy, from what Jesus wanted, we are to receive our King on this Palm Sunday but we are to receive the true King and His true kingdom. Let's pray. We thank You, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, the true Messiah King. We thank You for that on that day that he, He was exalted. May we be, as people who receive Him now, who exalt Him, who worship Him and adore Him for the true King that He is. And may we be true subjects of His, seeking to follow Him, to worship Him, to obey Him, and all that He would call of us to do, that we may give Him honor. In His name we pray. Amen.